This morning's scripture reading is from Isaiah, chapter 35. You can find that on page 595 in the Black Pew Bibles. That's Isaiah, chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is God's word. I do keep your Bibles open at Isaiah 50, 34 and 5, 34 and 35, because these two chapters belong together, and we're going to deal with them together this morning. In the first quarter of the 20th century, Gresham Machen of Princeton Seminary and later Westminster Seminary outlined the difference between two religions that he observed in America at that time. One religion, Christianity, was characterized by belief in divine revelation and in supernaturalism. The other, known as liberalism, was based in reason, human reason, and never quite got beyond nature. A little later on in that century, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this, that theological liberalism is marked by Quote, a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And more recently still in the 21st century, Richard Rorty expressed his atheistic hope, maybe liberal theologians will eventually produce a version of Christianity so wishy-washy that nobody will be interested in being a Christian anymore. So there are these two religions, and while it would be an anachronism for us to read back the 20 and 21st centuries 
back into the 8th century of Isaiah, the 8th century BC of Isaiah. Nonetheless, the principles that mark Christianity and liberalism in our day and that marked the different groups within ancient Israel remain effectively the same, and they are these. That real biblical religion, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, is characterized by faith guided by God's revelation in God's supernatural activity. And that there is still also within the covenant community of the Old Covenant, as well as the New Covenant, there are those who are marked by unbelief, who base their information, their knowledge, their understanding on reason, and who never rise above nature. That was the case in Isaiah's day. He's been dealing with that matter up to this point. Let me illustrate the way of faith. The way of faith is to trust in God alone, to be your all-sufficient provider and your promise-keeping Savior. Right now, at this moment, the king offers terms of amnesty to his rebels in his kingdom. In chapter 30, verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. If you're a rebel against him, he waits to be gracious to you with a royal pardon. And today, as it was then, whenever hardened rebels call out to him, when they cry out in terms of chapter 33, verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. He promises, now as He promised then, to be our salvation and our stability and to bring us to a great place, which you find mentioned at the end of chapter 33, verse 24, where people dwell there, that is, they are secure there, and they are forgiven of their iniquity. That's the way of faith according to Isaiah and according to Jesus and according to the church of Jesus. The way of unbelief, however, looks not towards God and His work in Christ, but looks elsewhere. It looks elsewhere for its identity, its security, and its satisfaction. Ultimately, what it does is it puts its faith on reason or feelings or desires. It places reason, feelings, or desires at the center of the world. It never quite get, gets beyond nature. It doesn't believe in the supernatural intervention of God in creation or in Christ. There are these two ways. According to Isaiah, according to Jesus, according to the Christian Scripture. And these two ways have two ends. And in these two chapters, 34-35, Isaiah describes the ends of both of these religions. The end of the one, the way of unbelief, chapter 34, and the way of faith, the end of faith, chapter 35. Whether you find yourself this morning in chapter 34 or 35, there is your destiny. And the issue hangs, you, the issue hangs on how you ha are receiving and whether you are resting on the promise of God as He's made Himself known to us in Jesus the Messiah.
So let me kind of paint a little scenario for you. Supposing, supposing you insist on imagining a God who suits yourself, that suits the culture in which we find ourselves. Suppose we insist on living as we please. Suppose we insist on finding our own way out of our troubles, on putting our confidence in our own wit and wisdom. Where will we end up? That question is answered in chapter 34. Or suppose we surrender our minds and our reason to divine revelation. Suppose we give up all our attempts to be our own solution and our own Savior. Suppose we begin to trust in the promises of God, acknowledging Him as our King, resting on Him as our rock. What will be our destiny? Chapter 35 has the answer. And in these two chapters... Isaiah, who's been pretty good up to now, uh, he's done a good job. I've given him full marks for his work so far. But Isaiah exceeds his own standards in these two chapters. He excels himself in his holy language and exalted thought. He points us forward. He points us forward beyond his own day, beyond Jesus' day, beyond our day. He points us to the very end of human history. He points us in chapter 34 to the day of the Lord and in chapter 35 to the joy of the redeemed. First of all, he points us to the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 34, verse 8. God has put a day in his calendar. He has appointed a day for final judgment of the world. Verse 8, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. I want you to notice that what Isaiah is saying is that God's dealings with humanity, with the world at large, are posited upon the way in which the world at large has responded to his church in the world. Zion there is more than the city. Zion is the believing community of God's people. Zion has become, as the book of Isaiah has progressed, the, uh, the representation of the people, sometimes described as his bride, the bride of the Lord in the Old Testament, the bride of Christ in the New Testament, the community of people who know the Lord's presence, who believe the Lord's promises, who acknowledge the Lord's preeminence, those people are Zion. And God is concerned about the world's response to his Zion, how the world has treated his church in the world. Those who have threatened her survival, those who have distorted her doctrine, those who have led her people astray. There is a day of reckoning, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, Isaiah says. And this day of recompense is the day of final judgment. Now, there is no more difficult subject to treat for us moderns to deal with than this theme of judgment. The prophet has already told us back in chapter 28, verse 21, that judgment is God's strange work or his alien work. 
It's not what he would rather do. But he must do it. And we struggle with the idea of God's judgment because our thoughts of God are too small. We think God to be as we are. We think God's attitude to sin to be as elastic as our attitude to sin is. We set the agenda in terms of how we want to think about God. People have said this to me. They've said something like this. I like to think of God as a loving father, a good friend, a gentle helper, someone who gives me unconditional love and acceptance. You can't listen to people tell you about the kind of God that they like to think about without faces lightening up, eyes glowing, hearts warming, and a little tear trickling down your cheek. But you talk about the God of the Bible who is a God who is a judge, and the body language will say it all. And yet we have to say when you actually read the Bible rather than just hear about it, you cannot escape judgment. It's there from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus actually talks more about it than anybody else in the Bible. And in fact, Jesus says this, the Father, that is His Father in heaven, has committed all judgment to the Son. Jesus is saying that when the day of final judgment arrives, the judge on the throne will be gentle Jesus, meek and mild, only not so meek and not so mild. The lamb that was slain at Calvary will be the lion on the throne on the day of judgment. And that is the reality of what the Bible says. And throughout Scripture, the judgment of God is related to the kingship of God. If you glance back to 33 verse 22, at that verse it says this, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. If you take that and apply it to the whole of humanity, here we are. We are in God's real estate. He made this earth. And not only has He made the earth, He has made the conditions in which we find ourselves. And He has given us the Maker's Handbook to the running of the world and the running of the human life. And when we despise the handbook and we think we can do it ourselves, well, we're going to be as successful as the man who brings something back from Ikea and decides he's going to put it together without looking at the instructions. You live with some of these men, and you've seen how well they do it. And the reality is that without the maker's handbook, we have destroyed the world and we have destroyed our own lives. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. So here's Isaiah looking way down into the mists of history beyond himself and us, and he speaks about the very end of history as we know it. The day when the world will be judged. Verse 1, draw near, O nations, to hear. Give attention, O peoples. Nations, people, that's a parallelism, that's poetic parallelism, both referring to the world at large, the nations at large. Not just 
the world outside the church, but sometimes people in the church. Because as Isaiah has been speaking even to the church of his day, he has to speak to it sometimes as if they are no different from the nations, the pagan nations outside. The world has breached the church. And the world in its terms of its culture, its values, can be found inside the church and on the church's pews from Sunday to Sunday. So he's addressing the peoples, the nations. Verse 2, the Lord is enraged against the nations, furious against all their host, devoted them to destruction and given them over to slaughter. There will be a day of universal judgment. You can see that in the terms that are used. Nations, peoples, earth, world, no one, nothing is left out. The whole world is guilty before God, as the New Testament says. We are all equally objects of wrath. And specifically, verse 2, devoted to destruction. That word, that phrase that's used there, the verb, is taken from the book of Deuteronomy where it describes a person or a thing that is placed under the divine ban, B-A-N, or curse. And what it means, what the word, the verb means, is to hand back to God what belongs to God. Everything belongs to God, including you, including your life and breath. And on the day of judgment, everything that belongs to God will be reclaimed by God, will be handed back to God, everything devoted back to Him. This judgment is universal. This judgment is cosmic. It affects the whole created order. Verse 4, the host of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All the hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine. This is language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 in the New Testament. He describes the end of history. He says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's where history is going to end. Jesus is going to return in power and great glory. And His coming will set into motion the series of events that culminate in the judgment, the general judgment of all the world. And that judgment is underlined. Look at verse 6. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood, gorged with fat. The Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra, great slaughter in the land of Edom. This is not pretty language. This is not easy language. But it's language that's used for the people of his day describing what they would imagine as total warfare. They'd seen total warfare. He is taking the very worst thing they've seen in their lifetime. And he's saying the final day of judgment is worse than anything you've seen. It is a day of judgment. It is the vindication of God Himself. The judgment is cosmic. It is total. 
This is no theoretical thing. It is total judgment. Slaughter, stench, blood. And he uses an illustration of Edom in verse 6 there. He could have picked any of the nations round about, but Edom particularly was a good representation of everything that is opposed to God's people. There was no enemy of Israel that was more consistently opposed to Jerusalem than the people of Edom. It was they who rejoiced. In fact, they pressed for the total raising of Jerusalem to the ground during the Babylonian period. The Edomites represent the world. They represent the kingdoms of this world. Interestingly, Edom in the Bible story is only ever overpowered once during the reign of David. And Edom as a representative of the world kingdom is going to be overpowered by David, the great David, great David's greater son, King Jesus. On this day of judgment, this day of vengeance, verse 8, the garden that God made, the world that we live in, will become a wasteland. It will become a wasteland. The streams of Eden shall be turned to pitch, her soil to sulfur. Her land will become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Now you, you have to say this, whether you believe in God or not, you have to say at least God is honest with you. He doesn't want you to be deceived. He doesn't paint a pretty picture that is an illusion. He is absolutely frank with you about the seriousness of the issues at stake. The whole world is in view. The issues at stake are high. God's judgment is total. And final, verse 10, night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. A ruin, a smoldering ruin, a garden turned into a wasteland, now, in Bible contexts, this kind of destruction never implies literal non-existence or annihilation, but it does signify frustration and powerlessness. Look at verse 11. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. He's using surveyor's language. What will it be like, that condition of wasteland? What will hell be like? It will be confusion and emptiness. Confusion means meaninglessness. The two words that are used there are used in Genesis chapter 1 when we read that the earth was without form and void, without light, without life. And all this, verse 16, has been put into God's book, the book of the Lord, the book that will be opened at the final judgment. Because God's very mouth has commanded it. Verse 16. So what do, we do, what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do, do with all these stories in the Old Testament of total warfare? We read these stories and they're horrific stories. And they are horrific stories. But they are only ever foreshadowings of the final judgment. Well, why should I think of final judgment? 
You want to underline the seriousness of sin, of not giving God glory. If there is only one God, then it is sedition to misrepresent Him. It is treason to betray Him. It is rebellion not to bow to Him. But there's more. Because judgment, final judgment means justice will be done in the end. Good will triumph in the end without a final judgment. Frankly, what do we have to say to these boys and girls who are murdered in their womb? What do we have to say to the woman who spends a lifetime in an abusive relationship with a husband that beats her black and blue over and over again? What do we have to say to the girl who was raped and who has never been taken seriously and her, her rapist never ever brought to justice? What do we have to say about the millions who are dying because of the greed of others in the world? Justice has to be done and has to be seen to be done. And only the final judgment guarantees that it will be done. Judgment must happen for anyone to get to heaven. That's what the cross of Jesus is about. It's about the justified wrath of God being directed at His own Son rather than those who deserve it to be directed to them. That's the heart of the good news of the gospel. Judgment takes place either at the cross of Calvary on, or on this last day. And if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, the judgment has already passed over you. Well, if chapter 34 is depressing, chapter 35, is mind-blowingly wonderful. The prophet describes the end time, a final exodus of his people from their bondage into freedom, their eternal, blissful destination in the heavenly Zion. These people, these pilgrim people that he describes in this chapter, are defined by the words you find in verses 9 and 10. The words are redeemed and ransomed. The word redeemed puts its emphasis on a redeemer. The word ransomed puts the emphasis on how much it costs to redeem people, the cost, the price paid. In Bible usage, the idea of a redeemer and redemption and ransom is used in a variety of ways to give us a kind of big picture of what's involved. Somebody is disinherited and a close relative comes in to help them out. Somebody has become bankrupt and a benefactor steps in to pay the debt. A slave in the slave market has someone come along who pays all the asking price and then, having paid the price for them, sets them free. The hostage 
being held against their own will, is liberated because the ransom is paid in full. Get the idea? To be redeemed is to have your inheritance restored. To be redeemed is to have all your debts paid. To be redeemed is to be freed from bondage. It is to be saved from death at some cost. And this language of redemption is captured in the coming of Jesus. He is the Redeemer. We have a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, blessed Lamb of God, Messiah, the Holy One. He has come into the world to be our Redeemer, to pay the price, to set us free, to restore our inheritance, to remove our indebtedness, to take away our death. You know what a Redeemer does? A Redeemer comes up to you and he says, what's your problem? Let me deal with that. He comes up to us and he says, what is it you need? I'll give you what you need. He says, what burden are you carrying? Let me take your burden and carry it for you. That's what a Redeemer does. He bears it all he pays it all. He does it all. And the Lord himself is the only one who can be that relative. That's why he took our humanity, so that as one of us, he might, he might deal, return our inheritance to us, pay our debts, shoulder our burdens in our place, and pay the price for our salvation. The redeemed are ransomed. Not only are they ransomed, but the whole earth begins to share in the redemption of God's people. Look at it. Verses 1 and 2. The wasteland. You remember? What's happened to this world? It's gone from being a garden to being a wilderness. Now the wasteland becomes a garden. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Here's something that reminds us of the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. Here it refers to the kingdom of Christ, and by the kingdom of Christ, I mean not only that which begun here, but that which will be completed on the last day. The day of renovation and restoration. Because believers will never find perfect rest until that day. What this chapter is describing is where we will spend eternity. <clears throat> Earlier this morning I went to speak to the boys and girls and I asked them the question. I said, this is a trick question. Where will you spend eternity? Little hands went up. And they gave me the answer. And it was the wrong answer. I warned them. It was a trick question. What do you think they said? What would you say? Would you say heaven? Would you? Would you, you, know, you do know you would be wrong. You would be wrong. We're not going to spend eternity in heaven. You really do need to know the difference between the interim state and the eternal state. Supposing you were invited to a party in a very, the most expensive hotel 
that you can imagine with the best restaurant in the world. It's got so many stars and thingies and da da da. Uh, you know, it's just mind-blowingly amazing, this place. You, you arrive at this. You, make, you know, take your taxi, you get there. You're welcomed and shown into the lounge area. It's a beautiful lounge area. Gorgeous, big, sumptuous leather sofas to sit on. Your seat hardly touches the sofa when someone's there with the hors d'oeuvres and the nibbles for you to... And they're absolutely delicious. You don't, can't get enough of them. You're putting them in and, and the wine is flowing freely. Chateau Neuf de Pape and Saint-Emelion. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. The host has met you and introduced yourself introduced himself to you, and as, as new people come and they gather, you're, you're introduced to them, and soon the conversation is flowing, like the wine is flowing, and there's fun and laughter, and, and, and people are, are meeting new people, people they'd heard about before, and they're all gathering together there, and so one after the other arrives, and it seems a time flies by as they're waiting, waiting for the party to begin. You're thinking to yourself, this is the best party I've ever been to. But it isn't the party. It's just getting ready for the party. But there you all are until the very last guest arrives and the host says, Okay, come through. The party will be in the next room. And leading you, you all converge, bumping against each other, giving each other hugs as you go through the door to the party. You think it couldn't get any better than this? It gets better than this. When you and I, who are on our journey, stop from time to time as we do every Lord's Day, it's like drawing into the service station on a big highway. And we all gather at the service station just to see each other before we get back into our vehicles to make our way to the destination. When we arrive at the destination, and we do so one by one as we die, we arrive at our destination. We're welcomed by the host. We meet new people. The wine flows. The food's great. The nibbles are amazing. Conversations run into each other. Time passes. You have no idea how quickly time passes. You think, this is it. I'm so glad I'm home in heaven. One day when the last one of his people arrives, the host says, okay, now is time for the party taking us all together, all at once. Nobody left behind, nobody last in the line, everybody, all at once, at the same time. They enter into the new heavens, the new earth, where there's righteousness. That's our goal. That's what's being described here in Isaiah 35. And you see, the joy is overwhelming. Look at the words he uses. Be glad, rejoice, rejoice with joy. Here's a, a world that is crowned with all the very best you can imagine. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon will be given to it. Lebanon, Carmel, Sharon were noted for their fruitfulness. Here it is, given. Verse 2, even the desert will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Now Isaiah is preaching this. He's preaching well, but he doesn't remember that we're still on the way and so... He, he's, he talks to those of us who are, who are on the way in verse five, four, sorry, 3 and 4. You think about that, he says, the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Let that, let that be fixed on your mind. That's where we're headed. So therefore, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those of an anxious heart, be strong. Weak hands, feeble knees, anxious heart. The symptoms of fading hope 
unfulfilled longing. What will strengthen us on the journey? What will strengthen us is the knowledge that their Lord is indeed coming. To those who are tempted to doubt, he gives the promise there in verse 4. Behold, your God will come. He will come to save you. Remember that. On the journey, on the way, he will come to save you. And when he comes, verse 5, his coming will be marked by the end of death, the end of disease. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I want you to read that and remember that's poetry. That's not meant to be just analyzed. It's meant to be felt. It's meant to be experienced. This is where preaching shifts away from teaching. Not only are you trying to communicate some ideas, you're trying to get people to feel and sense the excitement of this. This is when, the, I mean, I would go up on here and dance around, except you would have heart attacks thinking I was going to bless this, t this piano here. But really, seriously, this gets you right here. Why does it get you there? This is where you're going. This is your destiny. You can't simply read this and talk about it like you can talk about the stock market. This is your eternal destiny as a child of God, and it is an amazing destiny. Look at that as he describes this thing. When Jesus came, you know, he did some of these things, didn't he? He opened the eyes of the blind, and he opened the ears of the deaf, and the lame man leapt like a deer. That was only like the, the crocuses at springtime bursting through the ground. That's what that was meant to be. It was meant to be a reminder. What Jesus is doing for this one and that one will be done for all of his people when they arrive home at last in his presence. It'll be universal. Look at verse 6. The waters break forth in the wilderness, the streams in the desert, the burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground, springs of water in the haunt of jackals, they will lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. It's all life where there was death. It's all peace where there was conflict. It's all joy where there was sadness. It's all meaningfulness where there was meaninglessness. You're not that little expression at the beginning of verse 7, the burning sand shall become a pool. Do you know that means literally, I think? The mirage shall become a pool. Do you know what a mirage is? You're there in a desert. You've been in the desert for a while. The sun is beating down on you. You, you can see the, the, the movement of moisture from the earth. It's creating kind of rivulets, as it were, in your view of the horizon. And at one point, because of your lack of water, you think you see palm trees and a pool you maybe even imagine, some of, the, some of the Hollywood movies imagine that you can see people in their bikinis diving into the pool. Well, that's really definitely your imagination. But seriously, you go through the desert and it's an illusion. It's a figment of your imagination. That describes people you know. Maybe that describes you all of your life long. You've been clutching at these things which in the end are only a mirage. They're an illusion. The things you thought would satisfy you, the things you thought would bring you peace and joy and meaning and purpose in your life. You've reached out for them and they have evaporated. They've disappeared. But in that day, no mirage, 
No illusion. Reality. Reality. This is where we've been going. This is what we were made for. Things are as beautiful and as wonderful as our Creator has made them. This is the destination of the people of God. And when they arrive home, they're overwhelmed with joy and gladness, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. These are the two destinies, you see. The day of the Lord, the joy of the redeemed. And the central fact of all history, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is what guarantees that this restoration of the created order and resurrection and satisfaction of God's people will come true. That's why, for example, when the Apostle Paul is writing about the future, he, he talks of the created order itself. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The, the mental picture he paints is of, if you can imagine, inanimate creation on tiptoes, peering into the future, looking upwards to the sky, waiting for Jesus Christ to come back again, knowing that as nature, it needs the revelation of the Lord Jesus and the transformation of Jesus' people for it itself to be released from its bondage to decay and to be released into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The whole earth renewed. The universe renewed. Make fit for us to investigate and explore forever. You think of the world God has made. You think of the God who made the world. You cannot imagine anything more wonderful or beautiful than the God who made the world. Because if you look at the world that God made, if you look at the universe, you see some of these clips you get on Facebook sometime where they show a little video that's been made by scientists of, from, from some uh, space machine that's out there photographing this universe we live in and the pictures, the sheer enormity, immensity, beauty of the universe. The beauty of this planet. The beauty you see in the people you love. And if the things God made are beautiful, what must God be like? A beauty that not simply leaves you breathless in the terms we speak of, but a beauty that leaves you breathless for all eternity. Just as well, you've got a resurrection body because you've been holding your breath for a long time. Isn't it amazing? This is the destiny of the child of God. And this is this earth. Let me just say this. God is not going to obliterate what you recognize and know. Just as He's not going to obliterate your entire personality. He will resurrect your body and He will resurrect this earth. He will renew it. We will be the same people made new and live on the same earth made new. Right now we're living in the shadowlands. And everything in this earth is a pale reflection of what things will one day be like. But in God's new world, we will rediscover the places we used to enjoy minus brokenness, minus corruption, minus decay, 
minus death. Isaiah has brought us to the gates of paradise. He has brought us to the proximity of paradise before in this book. He will bring us even closer to the gates of paradise later in this book. But in this great vision, he's come to let us see something of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. When you're struggling with life, you go back to verse 4. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. And when he comes, then we will be home at last. We cannot save ourselves or help ourselves. All we can do is rest on his mercy. And whatever our current circumstances, we can only look to the joy and gladness that lies up ahead when we eventually get home. And when we get home, if I can adopt and adapt the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, when we get home, we'll be able to say, home at last, home at last. Thank the Lord God Almighty. We're home at last. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, you would please take your word and use it as a medicine for the souls of those of us who are struggling. Use it, Lord, as medicine for our souls. Use it as an exercise for the muscles of our faith that our faith would be strengthened by it. Use it, we pray, as a warning for those who don't yet know you through your Son, the Lord Jesus, that they would throw themselves on Him and on His mercy today so they might be part of that great joy of the redeemed when He returns. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.